Well, hey everybody. Uh, thanks for coming to my presentation. So the question is, so are you one of those doomsday preppers? And I think a lot of us have been asked that. Uh, I know I have. A anytime I've um, brought up my job, I'm an emergency manager and most people don't know what that is, uh, but they equate it with whatever their understanding of, um, of preparedness or preppers is. So the question is, well, uh, are you, are, are we professional preppers? Uh, this is, uh, this is what people imagine in my, in my mind. That must be what they think. So, <laughs> you know, we're doing the, the, the whole professional prepper thing. Um, now there are a lot of, um, I'll talk about the, the, the prepper label, the connotations to go with it. And then, uh, also the emergency management side and then kind of bring them together. Uh, so some of the uh, negative, you know, we have some negative connotations that come with it, but, but some of the um, types of, of preppers, you know, we have the, the doomsday preppers, survivalists, bushcrafters, homest homesteaders, you know, that's a little, little more holistic. Um, doesn't matter. Whatever your, your visceral, visceral response is when, you he when someone asks you if you're, you're, you're a doomsday prepper, um, I want you to keep that, keep that in your mind as we go to this quick poll. So, pull out your phones. I know you all have them. And let's go. You can either point your camera at that QR code or you can just type in in your browser, uh, slido.com, and that will be our access code. I have three questions for you uh, that we'll ask on this poll, and, uh, and then we'll go over the, the data. So whatever is in your mind on what, what, a, what a prepper is, just keep that in your mind. You don't have to, uh, it's just an all-inclusive term for all of that. If you're just joining us, you can uh, log on to the poll real quick. Give you another minute and then, uh, then we'll move on to the next question. So what is your general impression of preppers is the first question and just whatever is in your mind when you hear preppers. We don't have to qualify or, or exclude any uh, subcategory. All right, so, so far, um, somewhat positive has, has about half the votes, uh, and then positive and somewhat negative are equal with about 21% of the vote, and then 7% uh, say negative. So your answers will all be an anonymous, confidential throughout this, um, and then we had one more added to positive there. All right, next question. In an emergency or disaster event, preppers are a liability, a net negative, a net positive, or an asset. So whatever your personal opinion is, and it will be confidential. All right, we have just about all the participants. So, so far, a uh, net positive is, uh, is the overall um, majority, 63% with 25% um, saying an asset, and then 6% each being a net negative or a liability. Uh, and then our third question. Can you, this, is, this one's mostly just for fun, can you meet all your basic needs for two weeks? And the options are longer, uh, that sounds about right, maybe a few days, or I'll just have food delivered if I'm hungry, duh. And I think I'm waiting for one more vote. That'll be good enough. 
All right, so the uh, majority, well, um, there we go. So 41%, so this is the highest ranking one, 39%, someone changed their answer, um, said, 39% uh, said longer than two, uh, two weeks, 33% said that sounds about right, 22% said maybe a few days, and then 6% uh, said they'll have food delivered if they're hungry, duh. Uh, now I'm gonna um, tell you some responses I got from um, doing the same polls on two other platforms online. So one was through LinkedIn. Most of my uh, connections on LinkedIn are emergency managers, emergency, emergency responders, and then an assortment of, of other people. Um, and I also shared this on my social media. And on my social media, people are there for preparedness topics exclusively. So on LinkedIn, question number one, what is your general impression of preppers? It was 52% uh, said somewhat po positive with 33% uh, saying positive and then 15% um, somewhat negative. And I'll um, go back to our answers here. We were 47% and then we also had 7% negative. On Instagram, 68% were positive. So that switched to a positive versus a, a majority being somewhat positive. Question two, on, or on, on LinkedIn, in an emergency or disaster event, preppers are, um, the, the highest one was a net positive with 46%, an asset being 30%, and then liability was in third place with 18%. Um, here in our questionnaire, we had a net positive being 63%, asset being 31, and, and a liability 6%. Uh, and then on Instagram, 80% thought they were an asset, which was uh, much higher than, than the crowd here. And the third question, can you meet your basic needs? On LinkedIn, that sounds about right, was 44%, longer is 40%, and then third place was 12% uh, maybe a few days. Versus here, 39% said longer, and 33% uh, says that sounds about right. So uh, our lead was, was uh, longer, with, though with a um, smaller percentage. And then um, on Instagram, Longer was the, the majority with 55%. All right, so I wish I could have sh shared those with you. Didn't get those in there. Um, it'd be easier to visualize them. Um, I'll record it and add it so you can follow me <laughs> on, on social media. I'll, I'll share it there. Uh, so talking about preppers, we have a, a bit of a, a negative connotation com that comes with it. There's a, a a lot of uh, bias from our personal experiences, things that, that we've seen on TV, obviously. Um, maybe, maybe things you've dealt with in an emergency or a disaster. So some of these are labels that I've heard that they're into hoarding, stockpiling, conspiracy theories or misinformation, extremism, fear-mongering, et cetera, et cetera. What else, what have people heard? Yeah. Yeah. With, uh, you know, into that category. Right. That 
Yeah, so panic buyers get lumped in with that category as well. I, that happened in the toilet paper shortage. Yeah, yeah. Um, you didn't have some. All right. So, um, you know, when someone gives you a label, you don't know what they mean by it, right? Or how many uh, how many nerds are in the room? Raise your hand if you're a nerd. You should be raising your hand too. Just kidding. <laughs> No, so uh, you don't know what I'm really meaning when I say this, right? Um, so what comes, what comes to mind when you hear the word nerd? A lot of things, right? So maybe they're a basement dweller. They play Dungeons and Dragons. Everyone who has glasses, they're, they're, they're a nerd. Poor hygiene, of course. Uh, encyclopedic knowledge of Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. They're good at math, but bad at sports. So the, these are obviously just stereotypes, right? So uh, I, I'm not going to give you a, a full uh, stereotype lesson on the, on the word prepper, but, but just understanding that where I'm coming from, um, trying to bridge this gap, is that when some people say something like that, they mean something completely different. So if we go back here, when somebody says the word, they might mean this. Um, somebody else might mean com something completely different. Um, we have uh, the doomsday preppers. This, this put preparedness in the limelight, but in a more extreme way. So this, is, this shows the, one of the, the biggest disconnects, which is the, the perceived reason for preparing. Now, I've met uh, several of the people who have been participants on this show. And just like every reality show, it's produced, somewhat scripted. Uh, they're given prompts on how to... Uh, talk about certain things, uh, etc. So it's not a, uh, you know, not not a real life depiction. Although, you know, in the show they had everyone pick a doomsday scenario, something that's that's big, and um, maybe it was an electromagnetic pulse or the Yellowstone caldera eruption. Are when people think about individual preparedness and they lump it in with the the, the prepper idea, there are two things that. Um, that give people a hang up. Now this is one is the why, and then the other one is how. Like the re I don't like the reason they're doing it, or I don't like how they're doing it. So for reasons, these are some of the wrong reasons, right? Um, do these sound too extreme to prepare for? Is the world gonna go crazy? We're gonna have all these natural disasters going on, pandemics, war economic downturn or collapse, civil unrest, resource and supply shortages. Well, don't worry, I've got some right reasons over here. Uh, oh, climate change and uh, COVID-19, Russia, Ukraine, holy smokes, I guess these are, uh, yeah, about the same thing. So highest inflation in 40 years, riots, act of violence, supply chain disruption, sanctions. Now, we are likely to, when we label people, see the reasons they do something as um, not, not appropriate. We as emergency managers, we have a lot of reasons why we do what we do. And we know the disruptions. If you've been in any of the other um, breakout sessions when they're talking about uh, thyras or, or hires or risk assessments, all of those, we really get down into the things that are happening that, that affect us. So the question is, are there a list of uh, approved emergencies or disasters to prepare for? And, you know, of course, uh, of course not, but not just us and not just um, individuals, but we often 
prepare for what we fear. And um, this is a, a quote I really uh, I love and I like to share it. Training is the thing we do right after we need it most. And in emergency management, when we, when we go through an incident or we see it on the news, our leadership is usually like, hey, we should be, we should be focused on that specific thing. And whatever is the thing that people fear is what we push for. For individuals, um, as illustrated in, in the uh, National Geographic show, if they have a specific scenario in mind, then that's what they're preparing for. And that happens a lot. A lot of people will go through um, a disaster or see it and, and become afraid and act based on that. And um, you know, that's, the, that's the why of preparing. And we know that acting in, in fear isn't always the best way. Uh, but we're not immune to that either, um, especially when it's our leadership or the executive leadership or policy and decision makers who are telling us what we have to do. So it's kind of our job in our organizations to go back to the facts and the data and say, I know this is scary and to keep ourselves in check as well. I know we're worried about this, but we, all, we already have a plan for it. I remember um, in Ebola, I was working in public health at the time as an emergency planner, and we had a meeting when we're preparing to receive travelers uh, from Ebola-stricken countries. And we met with all the fire chiefs from the, the local jurisdictions. And people were talking about all the, the fears they had, things they're worried. And one of the chiefs just said, we have a bloodborne pathogens plan already. Ebola is a bloodborne pathogen. We know what we're supposed to do. And it was such a breath of fresh air because suddenly this, this pathogen, this fear is in our minds and we're told hey, we, we should be focusing on this solely. We even did an, uh, an exercise and, and had to change the requirements a little bit based on, on, um, on what we were being told to be an Ebola exercise, even though it wasn't necessarily practical, uh, but that's how it was gonna get funded. So, um, you know, so it's tough to like be that, that person who has to make the, the, deci the decisions based on what we're being told to do. But, but being able to see things for, for what they are, look at the facts, and not focus on fear, uh, when we already plan for something, that, that can be extremely beneficial for us as emergency managers and for individuals as well. So are we asking the right questions when, when people have a concern? Does it really matter why anyone is preparing? Now, some people consider unrealistic scenarios like zombies, and they say, well, that's, the, that's outside the, the reasonable scope of scenarios. Uh, the truth is, it doesn't matter as much why we're preparing, uh, because when we're looking at the disasters and, and um, you know, the, even the doomsday scenarios, those are things we prepare against. We look at these fears, and the target is always changing. I mean, what were we worried about one month ago? versus what we're worried about now. Like it's, it's completely different. And the, the fear, the thing that you, you're fighting against always changes. Instead, uh, what we do and what we hope, the, hope individuals do is focus on what you're preparing for in a positive sense. Now we know that all disasters are local. It's not, it's not the tornado that's the disaster, it's how it impacts your community. If it runs through a, a a strip mall, 
then that has an impact. If it runs through a meadow, not so much. So we have hazards and we know that these hazards exist and we can analyze the risk that they are to, to our communities or to ourselves. Uh, but then we look at the impact and that's what we're preparing for. We're preparing for, for our organization, for our stakeholders, for our community, uh, not necessarily against every single thing because we're gonna miss something, we're going to get burnout and we're just gonna always be jumping from, from target to target. So asking why someone's preparing isn't always the right question if, if we focus on, on the impacts and the, and the needs versus, uh, versus the things that we're afraid of or the specific hazards. Now, we're gonna talk about the how, right? So, so why is a thing that a lot of people have an issue with and how? Sometimes I think we do send a message and we've probably heard it a bit. Now we had some, some um, you know, net, net negative and uh, answers in the poll. Some people considered uh, preppers a liability and um, you know, some people also consider them an asset. And there's a, a lot of conversation goes into both of those, those answers, right? Um, but are we sending a message that we want people to be prepared, just not too prepared? Now, if somebody says, I just don't see why anyone needs whatever, or why anyone would want to do whatever, right? It's, it's injecting your opinion on, on somebody else. Now, the extent that people are going to, to prepare, again, we'll go back to the Doomsday Prepper show, uh, but maybe we've seen something in our own community, maybe doesn't sit right with you. So, um, like, do we have an acceptable amount of time? It's three days. That's, you're, you're supposed to prepare for three days and nothing more because, well, what, what, what are we gonna do? If we can't ride in and save the day, um, <laughs> no one, no one should, should be able to take care of themselves. Or is it two weeks or is it three months? Um, there's, if there's a, an expectation that people should only prepare for a certain amount, then, and then we put that in any sort of messaging or communication, then that implies that the ex their, their expectation of us could be that will be there within that certain amount of time as well. So if people prepare too much, are they hoarders, right? And this implies a lot of things. This implies um, you know, antisocial or uh, mentally unstable behavior. Maybe they're potentially dangerous to themselves. They're keeping resources that could go to others, right? And it's not just the messy hoarding, it's, it, right. No, that's not resources, right? But if, you know, that, that, that was kind of the, the panic buyers get that, that idea. When you hear on the news that people who are preppers are contributing to shortages um, as, as though already having something, it leads to an increased likelihood that you will run to the store and grab that same thing, right? Um, but does this look familiar to anyone? Maybe at the beginning of this pandemic, you opened up a trailer and you pulled out your N95s from 2009 and, <laughs> oh wait, these are all, they've, you know, they've got dry rot. None of these are any good anymore, right? So um, I don't know how many boxes of, of old equipment at different jobs that I've had to just toss. Um, now that's um, <laughs> something that, that we deal with, you know, worrying about logistics and, and storage. Um, but I know this happened in many jurisdictions in 2019 or 2020 when, when we're trying to deal with, with a pandemic and well, 
because we prepare for what we fear, back in 2009, everybody got funding to buy a bunch of N95s. And um, you know, all the sanitizing wipes and everything were all dried up as well, um, if you still had them. Um, versus rotating through them and, and integrating them in your, your regular supply. Um, does anyone have a large department with a logistics dedicated person or a warehouse or any of that? Oh, that's, yeah, that, that's great. That's great because then, then things are more likely to get, um, to get rotated. Now, all of us try to stay on top of those things, but it's tough when it's grant funded from a separate source and then you have to integrate it into your regular use that comes from this, this source and then how will that get back into your, your, uh, your grant funded stock. Uh, so it can be done, but it doesn't always. Uh, so is there <laughs> not, not too much different. Um, at, after 10 years, this is not a resource either. So emergency managers, what do we do? I'll focus on uh, preparedness here, uh, which is a continuous cycle of planning, organizing, training, equipment, equipping, exercising, evaluating, and taking corrective action in an effort to ensure effective coordination during incident response. I like that definition. It's pretty all-inclusive, all but it also looks at different aspects of, of what we do as emergency managers. Our focus areas are typically one of three things. We have our organization. We have the employees of our organization, and then we have our population served. So if you are an emergency manager for a uh, college, then you have the college, including its facilities and uh, property, and the business continuity falls under that. Uh, you have the employees, all your faculty and staff, and then your population served at a college would be the students. At a hospital, your organization, the employees, and the patients. In a local jurisdiction, you have your county or city organization, the employees of that organization who do the work of the organization, and the community members, which is the population served. Now, individuals are a little simpler. They have uh, their home, a physical location, and then the household, the members of, um, the members of their household. So um, the population served and the employees just all get lumped up into, into people that live in the same place. Now, there might be extra responsibilities outside if you have a neighbor that you care for or, um, or somebody else that, that you have responsibility over. Of course, it gets more complicated. Um, but our responsibilities in organization, that's the, you know, like I said, the business continuity, uh, it's the buildings, the processes, infrastructure, uh, the employees, that's the risk management stuff, the um, safety, fire drills, training, and then, um, you know, of course, the population served. And we're really good at the, the first two, generally, and sometimes we have multiple departments covering all of those. Uh, they touch emergency management, um, all of them do, but they're not exclusively emergency management. Like I said, if you have a risk management office or a safety office, they might be part of the same department or they might be separate. Uh, but it all uh, falls under our concern and uh, what, we're, what we're responsible for in some way. Um, and then the population served, sometimes this is temporary or like, transitory. You know, when, while your students are on campus, they're your responsibility. And maybe when they go home or when they're on break, they're not your responsibility. And while the patients are at the hospital, they're your responsibility. But when they're at home, they're not necessarily your responsibility anymore. Now, 
there is the, uh, the, what comes with that is the doctors who are treating them would feel some concern for their overall health. The, uh, the teachers who are interacting with the, with the students might be concerned with their overall education. Uh, the business who is providing a product to a customer might be concerned with their overall financial stability, et cetera. Um, but in a, in a local jurisdiction, we don't have a temporary responsibility or concern for the community members. The population is always there. And the way we interact with them the most is through emergency services. So law enforcement, fire, EMS. Um, but they're always there. They're always your population served. And you know, we're really, we are really good at the, the, the first two. We, we prepare our organization, make sure that, that they can still run in, a, in an emergency, provide the services. The employees, we usually manage through, the, through safety programs, et cetera. Uh, but then we have many more people in the population served than, um, than in, in the rest of the categories. So when we look at preparing a community, there are basically two approaches. And we have the public trust as emergency managers. And we usually do this through a top-down approach. Our policy, uh, laws, all of that is the top down. When we, even when we look through our, our whole emergency management, local, through the state, maybe you have a regional in there somewhere, all the way up to FEMA, right? Now, some people have in their mind that all the way at the top, FEMA is going to come to their doorstep and, and help them out uh, during, during the response phase of an emergency. Um, and in the community, I think there's a pretty reasonable expectation that people have that, that they can expect some sort of help regularly, right? So if they call 911, people expect someone's going to answer and dispatch help within a reasonable amount of time. Now, we should be able to provide our services as much as possible, whatever your organization does, um, but it's not going to be a 100% thing but we should make it as, as effective as possible. We should always be ready to provide our service to, the, to our utmost ability, right? But does that mean that we don't then empower individuals? Now we've got this personal responsibility and that's the bottom up, right? So everybody has ultimate responsibility for themselves. Every individual is responsible for their own safety, health, everything else. Uh, so is there a conflict there? And, and at what point does, does it become our responsibility versus their responsibility? Now, I think overall, we have, have that public trust to provide the service that we're hired for. You know, so we should make our fire departments as effective at putting out fires as possible. Uh, but a bottom up, that individuals should also understand what their ability to put out a fire can be. Now, out of all the organizations and systems, groups, teams, everything else we have, uh, the people who are most capable of provi providing the support from the bottom up 
is us. Uh, when you have somebody who's trying to improve their, their health, they can go to the doctor, they can go to a gym, they can see a nutritionist, they can have all sorts of, of options where they're going to find the information. Now there are some options for, for uh, people to find preparedness information and it's usually online and it might be some forum of uh, people who are a little bit um, a little grumpier than, than others right and that goes back to the to the the why people are preparing so that so so I I've I've uh, dilly-dallied a little bit on on um, some online preparedness forums and you find people who are sometimes pretty grumpy and that's where <laughs> that's where the the resistance to embracing, uh, you know, the the the, the, whole, the subculture subculture as a whole uh, might come from, because of the either the the why or the how how people are preparing, and then how they um, explain that to anybody who who is interested. Um, so why us? Why are we the ones who are responsible? Well, because because we're the experts, right? We're the, you know, we're not, we're not doctor, doctors, but we're technical experts at what we do. We understand this better than most organizations or systems or programs that are in place. Now, do we understand it better than everybody? According to our poll, maybe not, you know, some of us are, are lacking, which, which, is, um, which is true for all categories of people and all aspects. Um, so, do we just leave it at the top-down approach? Can we give them a one-size-fits-all approach that says, all right, everybody, all you have to do to be prepared is build a kit, make a plan, and be informed. Does that do what we need it to do? Does that solve the preparedness problem? Um, now, preparing to help individuals, like we do through most of our, our agencies or jurisdictions, working on um, training exercises for emergency responders or first responders, preparing to help individuals does not prepare individuals. So when we do our part of organizational preparedness to make sure that we can effectively respond, that doesn't make the people any more prepared. Now it makes us more capable of, of helping them, it makes the community as a whole more resilient, more prepared for uh, for disasters or for emergencies, but it doesn't prepare the people. And training people to help us is not the same as, as preparing. So you've got your CERT thing. Now that's a, an excellent program. I love CERT. And um, a lot of jurisdictions look at CERT as, as an augmentee program for their local jurisdiction. Right. Yeah, you learn skills in CERT that can help you and your wife and your family, right? But after getting in, I wanted to branch out and help my neighbors. Yeah. So that's... There, there is a huge benefit to the program. It teaches, it teaches individuals. And, that, and that's, that's the way I like to look at it is in a disaster, if it's a large scale, you have these little dots of people who are better equipped, right? But if the expectation is solely that, that those people will augment the local response, that they're going to show up to the incident site, that they're going to integrate into the emergency response uh, or the incident command um, structure, 
that's not necessarily helping people be prepared either. But if you know, hey, I'm training this person, they might not ever show up to my, um, to my command post, but I know that he's taking care of his own home, he's taking care of his neighbors, and there's a pocket of, of a better, there's a pocket of preparedness there in the community. That's, a, like, that's partly a bottom up, you give them the resources. So um, when we look at why us, there are more there are more reasons not just that we're not that we're the experts because in some cases we're not you know when we look at individual preparedness maybe we don't know it all and um if we try to if we try to say that we do um i'm from the government and i'm here to help is a phrase that that is, that is not going to be well received um you know and if you know the, the whole you know we've got we've got a fema camp you all can come to <laughs> welcome aboard so here's, here's part of the reason why it's, it's our responsibility. And like I said, it's not our responsibility to prepare people, but it is our responsibility to ensure effective preparedness is happening from the bottom up. Now these are things that we use. These are tools and processes. We've got our Thyra, Hira, uh, HVA, so that's uh, Threat Hazard Identification uh, Risk Assessment, same thing without the T, Hazard Vulnerability Assessment, uh, so we do these risk assessments, vulnerability reduction in, in our organization or our community, training and exercises, continuity planning, all hazards planning. We have our preparedness cycle. Uh, so we go through the whole thing of uh, planning, organizing, equipping, training, exercise, evaluate and improve, and then all over again. Now, we have... Um, you know, we had some of these classes today. I went to the Thyra class and the Hira class, and they were brilliant. I loved them. Uh, we got information on, on how they did it, and they said, these are not the only way to do this. Uh, you can, there's no single way to do this. You can take what we've done, use it as best practice, and if it works for your community, use it. And this is, this is guidance. Now, I know there's some sensitive information. This, this can't all in its uh, full form be released to the community, but um, what if we did share some of this information? And you know, we, do, we do this entire process. We try to base our response, our preparedness, everything on, on data and solid processes. And when we look at our population served, these are some things that make us more effective. But uh, are any of these things that couldn't be applied to yourself as an individual? If you wanted to look at your home as your jurisdiction and say, I'm the emergency manager of my home, could any of these tools not be adapted to, uh, to what you do at home? I think, I think they could. And since we're already doing it, this is what we're the experts in. So we may not be the experts in all aspects of preparedness, but what those things help us to do we avoid the, the wrong whys or the wrong hows as they're perceived. So we, we try to avoid, as an organization, preparing for the wrong things or preparing too much. Now, it doesn't always, it doesn't always work um, based, on, based on human error, but the more diligent we are at, at understanding why we're preparing and using our tools, so when we use our tools and data, and focus on needs rather than just hazards. 
thing that's an incomplete sentence there. So we use our tools and data and focus on needs rather than hazards. So that's what we do all the time. Day to day, we look at the, the tools that we have and the processes we use, and then we make informed decisions. Now, we don't have to worry about zombies because we know the, the risk assessment of zombies puts it at a not probable, uh, low risk type of thing. Uh, so it's, well, impossible, right? Uh, so most disasters are not the end of the world. And most disasters are relatively minor disruptions. Now, obviously here we've got a situation where for a, a person, that's a huge disruption. Every aspect of their life is disrupted. You know, they're, they're displaced, all their possessions are destroyed. So, um, so what do we do with that? Well, our responsibility is that we should be proactive and clear with our information. Those things that we already talked about, the things that, um, that we use as our tools, we can adapt those to our communities through our, our messaging. I just attended the um, Engaging the Community um, session over here. It is uh, Fairfax County who talked about what they're doing in their community, and they have a very robust program. I remember I was up there when they just came out with their, their CERG, the Community Emergency Response Guide, and um, I, was, I was working in Northern Virginia, and I remember the excitement when they had this, this copy, and it's like, you know, like, $42 or something to, to print one of them. So you know, we all wanted one, uh, but they had put it on, uh, they just put it online. And um, to talk to them now and, and hear what, they're, what they've done, they've got, um, they've got programs they're doing in their community. They've broken down, essentially the idea is with, the, with the, their emergency response guide is to create an EOP, emergency operations plan, for their community not just for their organization or for their response. It's, it's, hey, you as an individual, we're giving you a tool that can help you. Is it going to work for everybody? No. Uh, does it account for everybody's needs? No, but they've done a lot of work to really help people from the, from the bottom up. Now, our, our one-size-fits-all solutions might be easy, they might be tweetable, um, but we've got a whole wide range of, of people in our, our communities. We have people who can't afford food for the next day, so they're not gonna be able to store food for three days. So there are other needs that need to be addressed. And we have people who um, <laughs> can, they, you know, maybe, maybe we do have uh, people who are um, stockpiling enough food. I had a conversation with somebody um, during, this, during this symposium, and he said, I don't know why anyone would need, so it's that, that question again, I just don't know why anyone would need a, a year's worth of food, and his, his opinion, right? Um, and maybe you're thinking the same thing. Why would somebody need a year's worth of food? Like three days is good, two weeks is good, mm, a month is good, but is there a cutoff? Now, we'll go back to the, we're asking the wrong question about why or how, because it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter to us if what we're doing is empowering individuals to act on their own, right? If we are helping people to understand their own needs. If we as an organization make sure that we can run our operations for however long, an extended period of time, and that we have all the systems, the, um, you know, the, the plans, the agreements, 
in place so that we can continue to run our operations and it's not costing us anything more because we're going to rotate through it, we're gonna process through that, then um, our bosses are gonna be like, good for you, this is awesome. You know, we know that we can, we can continue to run operations, that we can um, support our community, provide the services we provide for however long uh, and to however many people. So we don't hold a monopoly on disasters. Now this is, I, th I think each of us have had some, um, we've seen from one side or the other, this, this disconnect between um, what, might, you know, what we might consider extreme individual preparedness um, to being, want, to our wanting to be as prepared as possible to respond, to support our, um, to support our community through our response agencies. Now, if we look at you know, the, the, the conflict there, it's not, like our, our, our services are not going anywhere. We're not going to one day wake up and they're like, hey, um, you know what? Everybody's healthy now. No one's ever gonna need to go to the hospital again. We don't need ambulances. You know, the, the services we provide are always needed and they're always, especially for, uh, for people who you know, need them the most, right? Um, so disasters affect everybody and there's enough to go around. And when we look at what we do, we are not threatened by individuals being prepared. It serves our purpose. And I go back to why us. Why us is because we as emergency managers want to make sure that our communities can handle any disaster or emergency. And when we have limited resources, when we have uh, only so many ambulances that can go out and you have just as many people who need those ambulances and then one more, we've already you know, gone past our capacity. But if three of those people could receive some training on how to do first aid for basic or, or mild um, injuries, and we just know that they, they can handle themselves, so suddenly we're not, we're not so strained anymore. So it, act, it, it benefits us, and um, you know, there's no reason for us not to share uh, everything that we, we learn and do. Now, uh, Fairfax County was, was basically showing a great example of a lot of this put into practice. Um, so we do a lot of things that people can't do for themselves. We don't have people in our community that are thinking, I'm, I'm gonna buy myself a fire truck just in case my house, my house catches fire. Um, they, they can't do that. I mean, maybe, maybe a few of your community members can, but they, they won't. So do we empower them to do the things they can do? Now, that's what I love about the CERT program is it's empowering. When I first took a CERT class, I think it was 2012, and I was in there, there was somebody else my age, there was a family, and they had you know, kids and, and teenagers and then two parents and then the rest were elderly women and the, that was most of the people there and we all got to do these, these same skills but none of us really stayed on it as, as part of the team occasionally we'd go to some training but now these people who had never used a fire extinguisher in their lives knew how to use a fire extinguisher they knew how to bandage an injury things that that prior to this training, 
were foreign to them, that they felt powerless, now they're empowered to do these things. So moving forward, yeah, we've got things like CERT and other outreach. Uh, we could do community preparedness fairs or expos, and I think a lot of jurisdictions are already doing those. But are we making those effective? Are we really addressing people's needs? Are we meeting them where they are? And the fairs and expos, they can integrate training and education. It's not just the one-size-fits-all. It's not a, uh, just a pamphlet that says, hey, you read this or fill this out and you're, you're prepared. Now, all of that can go into a more comprehensive or integrated plan because um, all, all of the aspects of it, we as, a, as, as emergency managers, we don't just w wake up and manage the heck out of emergencies without, without a bunch of million pieces. We have so many plans. We have so many uh, processes. We do our, uh, we have a training exercise plan and a planning cycle and we integrate all of these things that we do with our organization at the organization level, with the employees, and then with our population serve, however that, that impacts them. And when we make these things more effective, then, um, then it, it becomes beneficial. And you can see the benefit even though you may not be able to quantify it. It's hard to get funding for something where you're just saying, well, we, we think this is a good idea, we're gonna put it out and you know, go be free, and hopefully it you know, does, some, does some good in the community. Um, when we base it on solid practices, because we're already doing it for ourselves, and we say, hey, we do this training exercise plan, it's shown full cycle of, of how we've, we've done continuous improvement over the years, and we've boiled that down into digestible pieces, we're gonna share it with the community, and we just need support and maybe some funding, and maybe some tools to help do that, you're more likely to get buy-in because you've already demonstrated that it works. But if we're just saying, well, I hope these people will be more prepared if I give them this checklist, and then you can never verify that, it's harder to, to justify it, even, even if it might be a good idea. So meeting people where they are. Now, social media, I know a lot of jurisdictions have restrictions on which social media platforms they can use, but it's effective because that's where people are. They're on YouTube and Twitter and uh, TikTok, Facebook, I don't know, <laughs> all, the, all of them, right? Um, but different populations or different subsets of the populations are on different platforms. And um, different platforms are also trending differently. Now, we can provide our training. We've, we've demonstrated it throughout this entire pandemic doing things virtually. So online courses or uh, virtual webinars, instead of trying to get people into our facilities, we can meet them virtually and they don't have to worry about childcare, they don't have to worry about taking um, however much time off on a, a weeknight or, or using up their time, they can just log in. Uh, so blogs with um, search engine optimization, now what I mean by this is if we're sharing something, we can find analytics for what people in our jurisdiction are searching for and also tie uh, the searches to our jurisdiction name. So um, if, if you live in any town USA and you, you can look up key phrases like emergency preparedness or emergency kits, we can tie their searches to your jurisdiction. So if somebody's looking up any town USA emergency preparedness or any town USA disasters, and we, there's, there's data out there um, to, to help find that we can target what people are already looking for and make sure they get the answers that, that they're looking for. Um, 
we can show them examples of effectively using the tools. The things that we use are um, when we do our, our Thyra, uh, when we do a training exercise plan and show how we use uh, HSEEP and you, you go through uh, you know, the discussion-based exercises and then escalate it to operations-based exercises. A family can sit and they can talk as they're working on their plan, where are we going to meet if there's a fire in our home? And you can you write that all down. So they're mentally rehearsing this as they're, as they're going through working on a family emergency plan. Our meeting place, if there's a fire, is over here. Okay, in your bedrooms, you go to each, each member of the family, what's a, uh, what, what, are, what are your two ways out? So they've got the door, they have a window. And okay, if the window's on the second, story, how are we going to deal with that? And, and you look at the, the items, supplies you would need. Um, so that's the discussion. And then we can talk through it. And then you ha have a fire drill with your family and you do, um, the, the, you do it slowly, working step by step, maybe with each individual family member. And then you do a full scale or a functional, right? You, you can set it all up. You can have it catered, however you want to do it. You know, treats are a pretty good incentive. Uh, but eventually your whole family will know exactly what they're supposed to do for that specific scenario. Uh, so your, your um, exercises are, are scenario based. Um, but then we can also look at all of their general preparedness and um, focus it on their needs and help them understand like we do with our business continuity. When we look at our essential functions and um, we do a business process analysis, we say these are the things we need to accomplish. How do we do that? At our home, we need to eat. How do we do that? Well, we need food. We need a way to cook it. Um, so you look at the, the needs and how you do that. And we can share this information because we already do it. We just have to look at it from a bottom-up perspective rather than top-down. And then uh, training and out outreach. Like I said before, make it enjoyable, engaging, not just handing out a pamphlet. Uh, it's not one-size-fits-all, but be ready with questions for the people and be ready for their questions as well. When we ask people questions, we can determine their level of understanding and the needs that they, they have and engage them where they are. So there is no doubt we are in and are facing difficult times in the US. It's always the case, may not be the worst times we've ever faced. Maybe, who knows, we'll see. So what we should do is help others to do for themselves what we cannot do for them. We, just like an individual isn't going to buy their own um, you know, fire engine, there are things that we can't do for every individual. We can meet the needs of some. We can't meet the needs of all. We do not prepare for everybody. We cannot. But... A prepared community is a resilient community. Some things are just also beyond our scope. And when we look at, you know, I'm not saying we're, we're gonna give up or, or not, not address them, uh, but when we look at larger issues that impact us locally but are a little more out of our control, and we may run into some supply chain issues or you know, panic buying, um, inflation, even um, geopolitical conflicts can affect us locally, but those are a little bit out of our scope in the way that we address individual needs. We can't send the fire department to somebody's house because they couldn't find 
a product they need at the grocery store shelves. It's just uh, we have certain capabilities that we can meet. So because it's our responsibility to uh, empower people, we can help them meet them themselves. So as we move forward, we can use community-based planning to help our citizens. We can do our due diligence to ensure that they have the right tools, uh, that they can act responsibly, that we can give them the information that they're looking for when they might delve into some forum online. They want answers, but we can give them to them. We can show them how these disasters, these hazards are, are likely to happen here. This is how they can impact our community. Here's how at risk we are to them. And then let's address your, your individual needs. And when somebody who understands their needs and decides they would like a year's worth of food, that's none of our business, right? So, um, so moving forward, just understand that we will do everything we can as emergency managers, just like we always do, to be prepared to handle small or large emergencies and disasters in our community. But by empowering individuals, regardless of the, the labels we give them, we can help them be more effective and efficient. They can use their own time, resources, and money in preparing themselves using the tools that we use and break down to give them. Are there any questions? All right, thank you everybody.